You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, April 22nd, 2021. I'm Megan Zarez. And I'm Fei Lu. The curfew for restaurants and bars in New York City changed at midnight this week. Many in the industry question why there's so many curfew at all. If we're following the rules, then we should be able to be open at all hours. The number of people in ICE detention is falling, but the death rate for those in custody is going up. Why they put my life in danger? Why they did all this to me? It's Earth Day, and one of the state's nuclear power plants is closing. But there's a different type of nuclear energy that could replace it. It's one of those rare opportunities where science converges in the hope of building a legacy for our future. Following the Derek Chauvin verdict in Minneapolis, many New Yorkers are celebrating. But they're wondering, what's next for policing in New York City? All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York City, I'm Arcelia Martin. New York is the latest state to allow online sports betting. The state will pick two platforms where gamblers will be able to wager. New Yorkers are still several months away from being able to put their money where their mouths are. Eventually, they'll be able to bet on professional sporting events. Think the Super Bowl. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office announced it would no longer prosecute prostitution and unlicensed massages. Cyrus Vance, the district attorney, asked a judge to dismiss thousands of cases that date back decades. The announcement reflects progress in the growing movement to change the criminal justice system's approach to sex work. The House of Representatives voted once again to grant statehood to Washington, D.C., where over 700,000 Americans live. House Democrats passed the bill last year, but it never reached the Republican-led Senate. But now with Democrats controlling the White House and the Senate, Adding a 51st star to the flag has more support than ever. In celebration of Earth Day, President Biden kicked off a two-day virtual climate summit. The president committed the U.S. to reducing greenhouse emissions by at least half before the end of the decade. The summit comes as scientists warn that governments must take action to prevent rising global temperatures. Speaking of temperatures, Central Park is set to hit a brisk high of 49 degrees today. And it's partly cloudy, so don't forget to bring a jacket. On Saturday, Brooklyn's Barclays Center will host a virtual memorial to rapper DMX. Born Earl Simmons from Yonkers, he died earlier this month after a heart attack at the age of 50. His legacy as a hip-hop icon rolls on. Uh. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Arcelia Martin. On Tuesday, Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin became one of the few officers to ever be convicted in the killing of an unarmed citizen. Since George Floyd's death last summer, New York has seen a range of efforts to reform policing. Advocates say that one of the keys to accountability is access to internal police documents. Rachel Moran is an associate professor of law at the University of St. Thomas. She recently authored a study on the release of police misconduct records. Rachel Moran, thank you so much for being with us today. Sure, thank you for having me. One of the big changes uh, that we saw this past year uh, was the repeal of a very controversial state law here in New York uh, called 50A, which sealed police misconduct records. W- what are some of the impacts that we might have seen you know, since the repeal of that bill uh, back in June of last year? Certainly one of the more tangible impacts is the release of information about police misconduct um, 
particularly in New York City, but all over the state. And we've seen a lot of media outlets reporting on the number of police officers in the New York Police Department who have lengthy histories of misconduct that the public previously didn't know about or have access to and who have remained on the force with little or no discipline. Derek Chauvin had a lengthy history of misconduct allegations. Before the repeal of 50A, if Derek Chauvin had killed George Floyd in New York, no one would even been, have been able to know how many misconduct allegations had been filed against Mr. Chauvin. Right. And unfortunately, it's still a little bit difficult to, to access some of those misconduct records. Why might that be the case? Why might there be some of these issues that we're, we're seeing? Almost as soon as 50A was repealed, police unions across the state started filing lawsuits to prevent release of the records. One other piece of it is the law prevented public access. And so when it was repealed, the public now in theory is able to review information about complaints that have been filed against police officers. But I say in theory because in practice, it's not like you can just walk into a police department and get this information. You generally have to file a public records request, and then it can take a while for that information to be released. Right. Some folks have pointed out that there's a big difference between increased transparency and accountability. We can say you have access to the information, but if nobody cares to access it and to read it and to see the histories of misconduct and to voice concern, then real change is probably not going to happen. I mean, I'm right here in Minneapolis. Our law school is a 15-minute walk from the site of the courthouse where Mr. Chauvin was just convicted. Um, we were in the heart of the protest last summer, and it's just an, it's a, it's a constant reminder to me. I don't think this, um, I don't think this conviction would have happened. I don't think, I don't think 50A would have been repealed had it not been for people on the ground saying, enough is enough, we're not going to tolerate this, and the, uh, the mass, mass protests that occurred after that murder. You know, we're looking towards a mayoral election. We've seen a lot of different proposals and a lot of different promises. What should we be looking for next in potential police reforms here in New York City? A lot of states are starting to question the laws that enable officers to routinely stop people, often people of color, for um, violating some extremely minor law because really they're uh, using that alleged violation as a chance to stop and question and search a person. Um, and I think that's something that New Yorkers should be on the lookout for as well, certainly given New York Police Department's history of stopping and frisking people of color illegally. Rachel Moran is an associate professor at the University of St. Thomas. Rachel, thank you so much for being with us today. For sure. Thank you. New York is slowly springing back to life. Ballparks are open, at least partially. Comedy show barkers are back on McDougal Street. And half of the adults in the city have received at least one vaccine dose. This week, the state revised its curfew for restaurants and bars. But as Jack Stone Truett reports, if you are going out for a bite or a drink in a city that never sleeps, you'll have to finish up by midnight. Marcus Ortiz and his friends are having a drink in a booth outside Dive 106 in Morningside Heights. It's almost closing time, but they're not ready to leave just yet. 
Does COVID go away when it's bedtime? I'm a little confused. Last week, bar patrons had to leave by 11 p.m. Now it's midnight. Since restaurants and bars reopened last summer, the curfew has shifted as infection rates rise and fall. It has been as late as midnight before, but only for indoor dining. It's also been as early as 10. This most recent extension was announced unexpectedly on Twitter from Governor Cuomo. The city's COVID rate is decreasing, but remains stubbornly high despite encouraging vaccination numbers. Earlier this month, curfews were lifted entirely for certain businesses like casinos and gyms. Last week at a press conference, Mayor de Blasio said adjusting the rules for restaurants and bars is a bit of a public health experiment in progress. Let's see how it goes for a little bit. Let's see what happens out there. Let's make sure that we're making decisions based on the data and the science. And data and science means you need to give a little time to see how things work. I contacted the state health department for an interview. They responded with a statement saying that bar patron activity presents inherent risks to preventing the spread of COVID. And New York City Health Commissioner Dr. Dave Choksi has urged caution in places where, after a few drinks, people might drop their guard and their masks along with it. Scott Wexler, executive director of the Empire State Restaurant and Tavern Association, disagrees. That is not based on science and fact. You know what that's based on? That's based on emotion and ignorance. He says the risk doesn't come from what time it is, but whether or not bars and restaurants are enforcing COVID protocols. And if we're following the rules, then we should be able to be open at all hours. Because it's the rules. The hour is not a public health rule. Dr. Bruce Wiley is a health policy and management professor at CUNY specializing in computer modeling for infectious diseases to advise policymakers. He says guidelines and curfews work best when the public understands the reasons behind them. In many ways, it it might be better to really enforce um, interventions that are clearly linked to reducing the spread of the virus. He says that inconsistent or fast-changing rules for different businesses make it hard to draw clear associations between what's working and what isn't. So customers and business owners often don't understand why a restaurant has to close up while a fitness center is open 24-7. A CDC study in September did conclude that drinking and dining out is a riskier public activity than going shopping or to the salon. But Lee says the primary factors of transmission are about lots of people in a shared airspace, whatever the establishment. That applies whether you're a restaurant or a gym or, you know, any other types of business or, you know, a, a party or what have you. For many bar owners, the curfews are more of a burden than the restrictions on capacity, especially as outdoor seating becomes more popular with warmer weather. Callum Cunningham is co-owner of Corner Social, a busy sports bar in Harlem. He expects the extra hour of business from 11 to midnight might mean as much as $15,000 per month in increased revenue for him and his staff. You know, that's like 15000 off your rent. That's like 15000 to have you pay back all the money you own when the shutdown and stuff. So, like, it is a big effect, you know? The state hasn't announced when or if it will revise the curfew. In the meantime, restaurant and bar owners will be keeping an eye on the governor's Twitter feed as New York City slowly but surely earns back its insomniac nickname. Jack Stone Truitt, Columbia Radio News. It's not only Earth Day. Today is also National Take Your Child to Work Day, when kids get to see their parents in a workplace environment. But since the outbreak of the pandemic, many New York City kids see their parents at work every day, right at home. Renee Roden reports. Liz Morrison is a licensed therapist who runs her own private practice. She's also the mom to two children under four. Her line of work doesn't allow for her kids to visit her on the job, but she's already talking to her daughter, Ella, who is three, about her work. Ella, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be 
a worker and I want to help your clients and watch the talk to your clients together. Take Your Daughters or Sons to Work Day was pioneered in 1993 by feminist Gloria Steinem. The holiday was founded to familiarize young girls with the professional world. Sarah Zaidi, a child psychologist, says that the pandemic has actually given children a clearer picture of professional life than visiting an office space for just a day. You, you take them around, you introduce them to your coworkers, you see the space that you work in, but they don't really get a sense of what you do the way that they have through the pandemic. Over the past year, she says, kids have witnessed the hard things about work. One of Zaidi's young clients even saw his dad lose his job. And it, it increased their level of empathy um, for the parent situation and understood a little bit more like why dad might not be as happy or jovial when he comes home from work because he has all this other stuff to deal with. Yurissa Perez is a teacher who works with special needs students. She says that over the past year, her four-year-old daughter, Zaya, has watched her teach on Zoom. Um, one day she was in school and they were talking about how people are different and there was a little boy in the wheelchair. And she raised her hand and she said, you know, my mom's kids are in a wheelchair. You know, so it was nice. Like, oh, you know, had this not been happening that we were in Zoom, she probably wouldn't know what my students look like apart from, you know, what I tell her. So her daughter has developed deeper empathy for people who are differently abled. Prez says her daughter also understands her own job better. Oh, just like Miss Castillo, you were a teacher too. I'm like, yes, I am. It's just that my, you know, my niños are different. I think uh, the, <laughs> the most interesting thing that I've heard from kids is that they have realized that their parents are different people at work and they are different at home. Even Sarah Zaidi's children have noticed the difference. Whereas before it was sort of like, okay, now it's just mom who's home. Now they see me as a professional, um, you know, at least from nine to six. And then it's like, okay, now she's she's changing to her pajamas. Now she's mom again. <laughs> and for Zaidi's son, Zaren, the year of seeing his mom at work has inspired him to think of his own future. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a doctor like, like her. Why? Because... I think I would be good at it. Okay. And from our Zoom cubicles and work from home studios, happy take your child to work year. I mean, day. Renee Roden, Columbia Radio News. Between 2019 and 2020, the number of people in ICE custody decreased by a third. But as Arcelia Martin reports, while the population of those in ICE detention is dropping, the number of people dying in custody is rising. Last spring, Marcian Morales Garcia started feeling tired. He got a fever and he felt nauseous. He took a COVID-19 test. It came back positive. But Morales Garcia was being held by ICE at Essex County Jail in New Jersey. So he was put in quarantine, in solitary confinement, for 21 days. Yeah, that was freezing in there. And uh, no medication, no clean water. We had to drink water from the toilet sink. Morales Garcia takes daily medication for diabetes and depression. He says his time in solitary confinement aggravated a growing sense of hopelessness. One day I felt so exhausted, so depressed that I stopped. He began to self-harm. Months later, he was put on suicide watch. According to the most recent ICE data available, over a one-and-a-half-year period, nine detainees died by suicide. When asked about the rise in deaths, 
ICE said in an email statement it's firmly committed to the safety and welfare of all those in its custody. The agency also said it ensures that facilities comply with national detention standards. But there are more than two dozen other deaths, too, from COVID-19 and the flu. And a recent University of Southern California study found over half of all of the deaths in detention facilities from the last few years were preventable. Sophie Turp is an emergency room doctor at USC and is one of the authors of the study. If that illness is potentially preventable in some way, the death from that illness, you know, could also be considered preventable. Terp says, bottom line, ICE needs improved medical care. She says another potential problem is lack of enforcement of guidelines for ICE medical staff who don't comply with national standards for care. The consequences for detention facilities not complying with their internal standards seems to be less clear to me. Um, And I think that having greater monitoring and potentially consequences for non-adherence will be important for improving conditions in detention. James Rose is a licensed clinical professional counselor. He worked at the Frederick Adult Detention Facility in Maryland in 2019. He left after a year. He felt he wasn't able to give good care to his patients. We were told, you're not doing therapy. You're just screening for suicide. Rose was struck by the sense of hopelessness some of those detained described. Many were from El Salvador, a country they had fled to avoid gangs and violence. If they, if they knew that they were going to be deported and that they would be killed as soon as they got there, why not just take it into their own hands? You know, you get a rise in hopelessness, you, you'll get a rise in suicide. It's that basic. The Detention Watch Network is an advocacy organization aimed at abolishing ICE detention. It says the lack of freedom in detention, coupled with the lack of medical and mental health services, is a lethal combination. Morales Garcia, who spent 10 months in ICE detention, was released with a GPS anklet last November. While awaiting his Board of Immigration Appeals hearing, he's advocating for ICE detention to be abolished. Why they put my life in danger? Why they did all this to me? when they could just use a manner and release me how they did at the end. ICE says it makes custody determinations on a case-by-case basis. Arcelia Martin, Columbia Radio News. And now Katie Anastas takes us to Central Park for the next installment in our series, New York Moments. With the horses, we are having fun in this beautiful park, you know? It is my office. (laughs) Mary, say hello, baby. Oh, it's a microphone. It's not an edible thing, baby. <laughs> She's looking for some carrots, by the way. Henry, a horse carriage driver in Central Park. My boss is my cousin. He said, Henry, I have a carriages and something in the Central Park. Would you like to ride? And um, I can teach you everything. And you can be the horse and carriage driver. I said, okay. We have beautiful customers from all around the world. Basically, all families and romantic couples are coming. We're spending a great time in the park. Nice jokes, nice photos, and great history. In New York City, you can feel stressful. And you, know, you can come over here, spend the time with the animals. You can feed them, you can wash them. You're spending like good time with the animal, and boom, you don't have any stress anymore. You're listening to Uptown Radio from Columbia Radio News. Podcast available Thursdays at 5 p.m. You're listening to Uptown Radio 
There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Fei Lu. And I'm Megan Zarez. It's Earth Day. Coming up, a wind farm off Long Island Coast will soon power 6 million homes, and a new type of nuclear power could one day come to New York. Celebrating Take Your Child to Work Day, when, for many adults, the office is at home. These stories and more coming up. Recently, the New York Foundation for the Arts announced a $1,000 emergency grant for disabled artists based in New York City. The grant is meant to support artists spanning multiple disciplinaries who've been financially impacted by the pandemic. I invited Christopher Nunes, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Movement Research, a dance nonprofit, to speak about the challenges artists and dancers with disabilities face professionally and throughout COVID-19. What are some of the biggest challenges for disabled artists during the pandemic? Inclusion, inclusion, inclusion. There are so many layers to inclusion at the same time. And um, especially now that the best way to communicate to each other is through technology, um, because disabled people sometimes don't have the access to technology. And when they do, they realize that either the software, the hardware, the websites, uh, the different platforms that we're using are, are not accessible for assistive technologies. Um, so best practices like describing yourself to blind people is never included in any Zoom meeting that I have attended. And we never think about um, how to make people with disabilities feel included. The main purpose of this call today is to address the New York Foundation for the Arts having released a $1,000 emergency grant fund for disabled artists. Do you feel like a one-time fund of $1,000 is really going to help disabled artists in the city? Um, so that is taking a step in the right direction, right? Because disabled people face uh, different challenges than non-disabled people. Again, transportation, food, um, care. We need assistance sometimes for care. Um, we need mental health benefits as well. Um, and um, alternative practices, healing practices as well. And so um, I think it's a very good step and I think it's a very good initiative um, because disabled people need to be um, in a different category, definitely based on the experience and the different things that we face and challenge every day. What are some other methods um, financial support or not that disabled artists can utilize right now? Well, building community, definitely, uh, which we always do. Um, we stay in touch with each other. We call each other. We support each other. We are always asking questions. Are you feeling okay? Are you okay? And um, building community is definitely necessary right now. Um, and because we have always been in isolation in a way, um, because spaces are not accessible or because we just don't feel welcome, um, or because we don't have access to all of the opportunities out there. That was Christopher Nunez. He is a visually impaired choreographer and the Director for Diversity and Inclusion at Movement Research. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. And thank you for opening this space to talk about disability in the arts and in these specific moments in history. 
For over three decades, some European cities have been powered by offshore wind farms. In the United States, these projects are still relatively new. In fact, there are currently only two working offshore wind farms in the entire country. But to counter climate change and reach our emission goals, more power generation is coming to the gusty East Coast. Haley Zhao has a story. If you stand on the New Jersey shore and face the ocean, you're looking at a good place to generate electricity. The closest area inshore off the water extends out is very shallow compared to other places. Joe Martins is the director of the advocacy group New York Offshore Wind Alliance. It's shallow enough so we can actually put foundations in the water to support the turbines. That's what makes the Northeast so um, suitable for these offshore wind projects. You won't be able to see them from the beach, but large wind turbines with blades as long as football field are planned for a site miles off the Jersey Shore. The project was developed over five years ago. At the signing ceremony for the bill authorizing the project, Governor Cuomo said, We're going to take greater steps forward today than any state has taken to date. We will lead the way in developing the largest source of offshore wind power in the United States of America. The plan aims to produce 9 gigawatts of power by 2030, enough for 6 million homes. Last month, to facilitate the plan, the Biden administration announced the creation of a designated wind energy area in the New York Bight. The Bight is an area of shallow water between Long Island and the New Jersey coast. Dr. Zhang Ha is an engineering professor at SUNY Buffalo. He says the plan will vastly increase current wind power generation in the state. I was under the impression that it was up to like 20 or 30 gigawatts. And so that's a thousand times, thousand times what you have now. Uh, that'll provide power to like, uh, you know, 10 to 12 million homes. Development of large offshore wind projects in the U.S. has been slowed by several factors. Relatively low gas and oil prices have made them a more costly option. And there's been local pushback against large-scale projects. In 2001, a plan for a wind farm off Cape Cod was aggressively fought by coastal communities. After you know, a very, very expensive and litigious process, the, the project finally collapsed. I think one of the lessons learned, what, big lessons learned then, was don't put them so close to the coastline. Martin says future wind projects in New York State will be built far offshore. So on a perfectly clear day or on a perfectly clear night, you might be able to recognize a little object on the horizon, but these are not going to be disruptive features on the landscape. Concerns have also been raised about long-term costs to customers, but Martin says these will be minimal. And just to give you an example, in those two first contracts that New York had its solicitation for and announced the award winners in 2019, they estimated that the cost for a residential customer to build those two projects would be about 81 cents per ratepayer per month. The project in the New York Bide is expected to create about 30,000 jobs. The project is still in its early stage, but the first step is now underway, creating lease area in the New York Bide for auction to energy producers, possibly as soon as this year. Haley Zhao, Columbia Radio News. And now onto another form of clean energy. Nuclear energy is carbon-free and constant, meaning it doesn't rely on sun or wind. And Governor Cuomo is calling for increased investment in clean energy. But some New Yorkers can be wary of nuclear power. Indian Point, one of the state's four nuclear power plants, is set to close this month. 
In the first of our two-part series, Kate Stockholm reports on a move away from nuclear fission and a new energy source that might replace it. Nuclear fission, a reaction which splits apart atoms to release energy, is responsible for around a third of New York State's power supply. But fission plants are closing after years of being priced out by cheaper options like natural gas and tax incentives for renewables like wind and solar. Plus, some, like Governor Cuomo, consider nuclear plants dangerous. And we will take bold steps to make us safer. New York City sits 30 miles from a ticking time bomb, the Indian Point nuclear power plant. But while nuclear fission is on its way out, fusion may be on its way in. Tyler Ellis is a scientific advisor to a fusion development company. He says fusion, as the name suggests, involves combining atoms rather than splitting them. It creates more energy than the sources which have priced out fission. If you were to, uh, to burn a methane atom, which you know natural gas or just kind of a small carbon atom of coal, uh, it releases two electron volts worth of energy. It takes 625 quintillion electron volts to power a 100 watt light bulb for a single second. Now, if you fuse two hydrogen atoms together, it releases 14.7 million electron volts worth of energy. That's a huge difference in energy density. And in carbon emission. Nuclear energy doesn't produce greenhouse gases. And unlike fission, fusion uses hydrogen instead of uranium or plutonium. So the waste from a fusion reaction is much less dangerous. Some of it is just helium, the stuff we use to fill balloons and make our voices sound like this. The atoms that fuel fusion reactions can be pulled from most water sources, including the ocean. Um, So what that means is that a very small amount of water uh, can actually provide energy for a whole family for their entire lives. I mean, it's, it's essentially kind of the opportunity for limitless energy. New York has plenty of water access, but in an emailed statement, the Department of Public Service said, Though fusion technology is promising, it's not yet ready for commercial application. But it's close. Richard Harlick is with the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. He's also chair of a committee working to bring fusion to the U.S. power grid for the Department of Energy. Uh, We have produced power from fusion. We produced 10 million watts of fusion power for a little less than a second uh, back in the mid-90s. For the record, Harlick says he and his fellow scientists know consumers want power for more than a second. You really want it for days at a time. And so we addressed how do you solve the technical issues, the scientific issues, the regulatory issues, such that you can actually build a pilot plant. Harlick believes a plant is possible in the next two decades, but it could happen sooner. The U.S. is one of 35 countries working together on ITER, an industrial-scale fusion reactor. LeBon Colblance is with ITER. It is a strange exercise in science diplomacy. It's one of those rare opportunities where science converges in the hope of building a legacy for our for our future. But it won't just take science. It will take politicians too, like whoever New York's governor may be in 2040. Kate Stockram, Columbia Radio News. Next week in part two of our series, Kate will report on regulations facing fusion in New York. In 2012, Hurricane Sandy caused flooding and power outages and left thousands of New Yorkers displaced. Last week, the city broke ground on a coastal resiliency plan to protect lower Manhattan from future storms. 
The project will level and completely rebuild East River Park, a popular green space on the Lower East Side. As Katie Anastas reports, many residents disagree with the plan. More than 300 people gathered in East River Park on Saturday to protest the city's East Side Coastal Resiliency Plan. They marched along the waterfront, under flowering trees, past busy games of soccer and Little League baseball. The two-and-a-half-mile park is sandwiched between the Lower East Side waterfront and the FDR Drive. Blocks of NYCHA buildings stand on the other side of the highway. Residents access the park and waterfront via pedestrian bridges. Now, the city plans to bury the entire park, under 8 to 10 feet of fill, and build a new park on top of it. Diane Lake is a longtime resident of the Lower East Side and a member of the East River Alliance, a community group fighting to stop the planned construction. One of the major fears in the community is that the city will take 10, 20 years to get all of this done. Community groups add that a recently remodeled running track would be buried, and two of the three historic buildings would be demolished. And above all, it's the trees. The park is shaded by a canopy of more than 1,000 mature oak, cherry, and other species of trees. Advocates say the trees clean the polluted air from the cars on the FDR and also cool the park. One of the the things that people love about East River Park in the summertime is that it's 10 degrees cooler sometimes than it is inland. Area groups also raise concerns about how the city developed the plan to reconstruct the park. In consultation with community members, the city originally proposed a different plan in 2018. Instead of leveling the park, a berm would be built at the edge of the green space along the FDR Drive. While the park would remain vulnerable to flooding, the existing amenities would stay. And the land could act as a sponge in future storms, as it did during Hurricane Sandy. Ultimately, though, the city decided on the plan now underway. Michael Keane is an urban planner who specializes in land use and environmental planning. Looking at the two designs side by side, he said the city's new plan makes sense. Raising the park and getting the trees out of the floodplain to me, that strikes as, you know, a rational approach, you know, in the interest of long-term preservation of vegetation and not just the trees, you know, everything that the park holds. I asked the mayor's office for comment. They directed me to a recording of a press conference last week where Mayor de Blasio praised the plan and the community's involvement. We've been working closely with the folks who represent the communities of the East Side who have been hearing the voices of people, bringing back the needs, working with us to perfect the plan. Last month, East River Action and other groups sued to gain access to the city's engineering study, comparing the plans and their relative merits. The published version was heavily redacted. Tommy Loeb is a member of the group that sued the city over the redacted report. He says the city wouldn't be so cavalier about demolishing a park in a wealthier neighborhood. Would they close Central Park for five years? Would they close Riverside Park for five years? Why do they feel so free to treat this community this way? And one of the reasons is we think that they thought that this community couldn't fight back. The city broke ground on the East Side Resiliency Plan last week. Late this summer, sections of the park will be closed as construction begins. Katie Anastas, Columbia Radio News. Another blow to New York City's nightlife has been a decline in tourism. Now the city is trying to fix that. The mayor's office announced a massive new ad campaign to lure back visitors. That campaign is called New York City Reawakens, and it'll cost 
$30 million. It's the most money that the city has ever dropped on tourism ads. But will that be enough to bring visitors back? Kat Smith asks what it will take to revive tourism during the pandemic. Grand Central Station is quiet during rush hour these days. It used to see wave after wave of commuters and tourists bustling through its cavernous halls. Businesses around the train station are suffering from the lack of traffic. The Pershing Square Cafe sits just across 42nd Street. Eliezer Palayas, the general manager, says things are starting to turn around, but reservations are still way down from where they should be. Uh, we used to get uh, 1,000 customers a day. Now we're getting 100, 200. 200 a day at most? Yes, the most. The year before the pandemic, more than 66 million tourists visited New York City. But COVID shut down restaurants, theaters, and hotels for months. Most people stopped flying. The number of visitors to the city plummeted by two-thirds. But the mayor hopes that the New York City Reawakens campaign, which launches this summer, will convince them to visit again. But Palayas says the $30 million marketing push might not be enough for his industry. The city has to open more, more of a capacity for the business. It's not just the restaurants. Almost all of New York's tourism-related industries are still at least partially shuttered. Ron Tarosian is the president and CEO of the firm 5W Public Relations. He says that the city simply isn't ready to bring back tourists. I think it's too soon for an ad campaign to encourage tourism to New York when so much of New York is closed. Great advertising and great marketing campaigns are authentic and they're real. Okay? Very few true New Yorkers today really believe that New York today is what it was before the pandemic. Over in Herald Square, Ajit Das sells tickets for a sightseeing bus tour. American tourists are coming to visit New York, so he is doing some business right now. But it's the foreign tourists that he really misses. Bad, very bad. Very few people come here. Uh -huh. They're not coming international people. They're coming for the United States, like the Florida, Chicago, and then California, all pe these people coming from there. No international tourists? No, no international tourists. Because airplanes, flights are not coming to New York City. Das earns a commission on the bus passes he sells. He says his pay won't bounce back unless international flights return. Looking around the unusually empty streets around Herald Square, the same could be said for the whole of New York City. Kat Smith, Columbia Radio News. The transgender experience is different for everybody. And for some, gender confirmation surgery is a major step in the transition. In this piece from our commentary series, Faye Lou writes a love letter to her body weeks before her operation date. Ever since I can remember, Britney Spears' I'm Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman has always been my favorite song. It's a coming-of-age ballad. I remember being a teenager, alone in a bathroom, belting out the lyrics, fully feeling the fantasy. I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. All I need is time, a moment that is mine while I'm in between. For three minutes and 54 seconds, behind closed eyes, my choppy short hair became 24 inches of glossy black locks straight from a shampoo commercial. My muddy sneakers became a pair of Manolo Blahnik pumps from Carrie Bradshaw's closet. And in the far distance, a judge walked towards me, 
sash and crown in hand, ready to deem me Miss America. Then the song would wrap. I'd open my eyes, and in the mirror, a pimply teenage boy, loathing everything he saw, would stare back. The fact is, I wasn't born biologically female. I'll never forget the day I found out what being transgender was. I was watching makeup tutorials on YouTube when a video recommendation popped up. A beautiful woman was talking about being transgender. My eyes widened. My palms got sweaty. My heart rate increased. That's what I am. Fast forward 12 years, and I've become that woman I transformed into in the bathroom, minus the Miss America sash and crown. And in less than 30 days, I'll be undergoing gender confirmation surgery. And for the first time ever, I finally see my body for what it is. A body that did its best with the tools life gave it. I'm not saying that certain body parts define one's gender identity. But for me, a certain aspect of my physiological makeup has never made sense. I refer to it as a biological mistake, bodily glitch, and even just as it. But all that was before I got my surgery authorization letter. In less than 30 days, I'll be rolled into a sterile operation room, close my eyes, and wake up whole in womanhood. I'll finally be complete physically, spiritually, and emotionally. A few days ago, my Taiwanese-American friend who does tarot readings told me that before my operation, I should really take care of my body. For example, I should start wearing green jade to metaphysically strengthen myself. In Chinese culture, jade bangles are believed to protect women from harm, breaking or chipping when their wearers are in danger. I ordered two jade rings. One was probably enough, but I want extra protection. I want to walk into this new chapter with a type of love I've hesitated to show my body. I was so distracted by the pain and frustration, it prevented me from even considering loving it. And that's why I'm dedicating this love letter to my body. I love that you've kept me strong all these years to get me here today. I love that you've tried your best to make me feel complete. And most importantly, I love the time we've spent together. People may think I hate my body, but I don't. It's just that for 27 years, we were never really on the same page. I'm excited to wake up from surgery in the same body, just in a new form. I already have a post-surgery playlist ready. Yes, it's full of Britney. And the next time I sing that song that got me through all these years, I'll be singing it with my eyes open. That does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Nicole McNulty ran our show today. Senior producer Karen Manarajo led our staff for reporters with help from producers Leila Doss and Haley Zhao. Senior editor Jack Stone Truitt and assistant editor Katie Anastas led our copy team. Web producer Kate Stocker managed our website and Arcelia Martin brought us today's news. Our instructors Sally Herships, Patty Hirsch, and Ben Shapiro advised our staff. I'm Fei Lu. And I'm Megan Zares. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Thursday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening.